Previously on Season 2 of Breakdown. The verdict is in proper form to be received by the court. At this time, I'm going to ask the clerk to publish the verdict. Thank you, Mr. Phillips. In the Superior Court of Cobb County, State of Georgia, State of Georgia versus Justin Ross Harris, defendant, case number 4931240, verdict form. We, the jury, find as follows Count one, malice murder. As count one, we define. There is absolutely no mitigation in this case. There is no justification. Uh, this is basically the most aggravated type of killing of another individual, specifically a young child. Uh, and I think that based upon the evidence that came out of the acts of this defendant, that there's only one sentence that reflects the, the evil nature of what he did. So, uh, Your Honor, we're going to ask for a sentence the maximum allowed by law. Uh, we would ask for, on count one, the defendant to be sentenced to a, a term of life, uh, that that be served without parole. They fairly um, deliberated and discharged their duties uh, and found the defendant guilty of what factually was a horrendous, horrific experience for this 22-month-old child who had been placed in the trust of his father in violation and dereliction of um, duty to that child, if not love of that child, callously walked away and left that child in a hot car in June in Georgia in the summer to swelter and die. The state's recommendation is the very least that anyone could deem just under the circumstances of this case, and I will follow the recommendation. Welcome back to Breakdown, the podcast from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution investigating Georgia's most important cases. This is a special episode of the season, Death in a Hot Car, Mistake or Murder. This is the murder case against Justin Ross Harris, who left his 22-month-old son Cooper in his SUV to die on June 18, 2014. It's been a while since I last talked to you about this case, but there are some major developments that we will explain in this special episode. This is Breakdown from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. The AJC's trusted veteran political voices, Greg Bluestein, Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell, and Bill Nygut are the essential source for Georgia politics. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia. Sign up for the newsletter, download the podcast, subscribe to the AJC. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. First, let's recap this case. Eight years ago, Justin Ross Harris was an IT guy at Home Depot. He leaves home to take his only child, Cooper, to Little Apron Academy, the in-house daycare center at work. Along the way, they stop at a Chick-fil-A for breakfast. When they leave, Harris gets to an intersection and does not make the left turn to the daycare. Instead, he drives straight to work, parks his SUV, and walks into the office. 
Within hours, Cooper is dead of hypothermia. Harris leaves work in the afternoon to join some friends to see the movie 22 Jump Street. He tells police that along the way, he notices Cooper is still sitting in his rear-facing car seat in the back seat. He screeches to a halt, takes Cooper out of the car, and lays him on the pavement. Leonard Madden was nearby. This is how he describes the scene. I went closer to see for myself what was going on. I saw a figure, but I wasn't able to tell from where I was walking um, who it was or the age. But when I got closer, I thought it was a doll. And about three or four feet away, I noticed that it was the body of a toddler. Right then, my, my heart dropped uh, because I saw this this precious boy laying there, lifeless. Uh, the father, Mr. Ross, as I got closer, um, you could just hear uh, his cries and uh, his desperation for his son to be revived. Well, he was saying, oh my God, oh my God, my son is dead, oh my God. He was screaming, he was, he was very hurt. I heard the desperate cries of a father who had just lost his son. Police take Harris to the police station and, after questioning him for more than an hour, arrest him for murder. At first, to many, Harris is a sympathetic character, a father who made the worst mistake of his life. But what comes out during a preliminary hearing drives the story into the stratosphere. It happens after lead prosecutor Chuck Boring calls Cobb County Detective Phil Stoddard to the stand. Specifically on the day of the incident, on uh, June the 18th, 2014, in reviewing the computers and phones and things like that of the defendants, did you uh, uncover anything and what he was doing during that day while his child was out in the car? He was having um, up to six different um, conversations with um, different women, it appeared, from the, from the messages from Kick mostly, which is a messaging service. And these conversations he was having with these females were these, what, of what nature were they? Uh, the most common term would be sexting. Um, were photos being sent back and forth between these women and the defendant during this day while the child's out in the car? Yes, there were photos of um, his exposed penis, um, erect penis being sent. Um, there were also photos of women's breasts being sent back to him. Harris was having extramarital affairs. He was sleeping with prostitutes. He was exchanging lewd photos with minor girls. He often used an anonymous messaging platform. In the seven months leading up to Cooper's death, Harris sent 5,000 whisper messages and 40,000 texts. It makes people wonder, just as the prosecution knew it would, how he had time for his job, his marriage, and his son. Then it comes out that he had been sending photos of his genitals to women even as Cooper was dying in the parking lot. Harris's global vilification is complete. In September 2014, Harris is indicted for murder and other crimes. Five months later, his wife, Liana Taylor, files for divorce. Leading up to the trial, Harris's lawyers repeatedly try to keep evidence of Harris's extramarital dalliances from getting before a jury. They contend it is irrelevant and highly prejudicial. But Judge Mary Staley Clark lets it in. All of it. She rules it is relevant to the state's effort to prove motive, that Harris wanted a child-free life to pursue his extramarital sexual relations. 
In April 2016, the trial begins with jury selection at the Cobb County Courthouse in Marietta. After three grueling weeks of questioning one juror after another, the defense files a motion to change the venue of the trial. To everyone's surprise, Judge Staley Clark grants the motion. The juror questionnaires show pervasive knowledge of this case. You read them, they consistently have some knowledge of the case. Some of them don't. That's the exception and not the rule. And they have a lot of information. And then the emotionality of the response includes comments such as, I hate to use vulgarity, but I believe one juror said rotten hell. I think another used the word pervert. Well, that's not vulgar. That's, that's a perfectly fine word if it, if it fits the situation. But regardless, uh, one juror even opined that the defendant deserves the death penalty in this case, which is not an option based on the way the case has been brought to court. The case has moved to the Golden Isles of coastal Georgia. In a Brunswick courtroom, a jury is assembled and the trial begins. It is briefly interrupted by Hurricane Matthew, which forced an evacuation of the coast. After 21 days of testimony, 70 witnesses, and more than 1,100 exhibits are admitted into evidence, the state and defense rest. The closing arguments are powerful. Lead prosecutor Chuck Boring reminds jurors what Harris texted another woman just before he parked in the company parking lot and left Cooper behind. I love my son and all, but we both need escapes. I love my son and all, but we both need escapes. Those words were uttered 10 minutes before this defendant with his selfish, abandoned and malignant heart did exactly that. He drove Cooper that Home Depot treehouse parking lot and his selfish, abandoned and malignant heart left him there to die. Boring also zeroes in on Harris's sexual transgressions. He lied about what he was doing and he went to a seedy Marietta hotel and had sex for money with a prostitute. That shows you the behavior and how his priorities were set and how this was escalating leading up to June 18, 2014. We know that during this time, the defendant's behavior was escalating. <clears throat> that after that vacation, he in fact was messaging with what turned out to be a 15-year-old girl something we didn't find out about until after indictment. We're, we're all tired. But the thing is, when you're thinking about how tired you are of all that language and all that, as they said, filth, what we say is his other life, this other side, this other dark side, hey, those are his words. That's what's in his mind. That is the other Justin Ross Harris. Does your conscience ever kick in? And what does that defendant say? Nope. And we know for a fact that he showed that lack of conscience on June 18th, 2014. He showed exactly who he is. Maddox Kilgore tells the jury what happened was a tragic accident. As I told you in opening, and as Ross explained from that very day, 
he is responsible. He is absolutely responsible. Only him. Nobody else. And he has acknowledged that from day one. He is responsible. But responsible is not the same thing as criminal. It is not. The state has not disproven that this was an accident. It is their burden to do so. And there's a reason why they can't disprove beyond a reasonable doubt that it was an accident. And that's because it was. Kilgore then tells the jury Harris could not have killed Cooper because he loved his son. State wants to suggest that uh, Ross wanted to escape from Cooper so bad that he would destroy the treasure of his life. I submit to you this. To do what they're suggesting that he did, knowingly and intentionally, to do that, there's got to be some pretty serious hatred. I don't mean just dislike. I mean, there's got to be some real serious ill will or hatred toward that little boy. The kind that would permeate your life and pour out of your pores that everybody around you would see and hear and know and realize and pick up on, but not one witness has indicated anything like that. The jury deliberated four days. It convicted Harris of Cooper's murder and the other crimes. The former Home Depot web developer showed no emotion as the verdict was being read. This is Breakdown from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution keeps you informed on the news that matters to you. And now, for a limited time, you can get six months of unlimited digital access to the AJC for just 99 cents. Politics, investigations, breaking news, sports, dining, and more for less than a buck. It's our best offer of the year for the best journalism in Atlanta. Go to subscribe.ajc.com slash podcast to get unlimited digital access for the next six months for just 99 cents. That's subscribe.ajc.com slash podcast so you always know what's really going on. Next, Marietta lawyer Mitch Durham takes over the appeal. The record is beyond voluminous, so it takes more than four years to prepare the motion for a new trial. Durham finally argues his case in December 2020. In May 2021, Judge Mary Staley Clark denies the motion. It's no surprise. A trial judge very rarely orders a new trial that he or she oversaw. The important thing for Durham is that now he has set up a record for his appeal to the Georgia Supreme Court. In the high court hearing in January, some of the justices seem to have some serious issues. They wonder, did the jury need to hear all that damning sexual evidence about Harris? 
Could the state have made its case without it? Lead prosecutor Chuck Boring and his second chair, Jesse Evans, are no longer working for the Cobb County DA's office. So the person assigned to defend the conviction was none other than Linda Donikoski. Listeners of Breakdown surely remember her. She obtained the murder convictions against Travis McMichael, Greg McMichael, and Roddy Bryan for the killing of Ahmaud Arbery. You heard that on Breakdown Season 8. But Donikoski doesn't have an easy time of it before the Georgia Supreme Court. Here's Chief Justice David Namius. The specific thing I think you need to address is um, there were lots of messages sent on the day, well, the, the night before, the day of, after this event. Um, you also needed to come up with some motive because otherwise it's almost impossible to explain why someone would purposely leave their child in a car. So it seems like some of the evidence may be relevant. I'm, I'm trying to figure out why you needed to mention the age of the women he was conversing with, why you needed to bring in prostitution, which is a crime, and, and also why you needed to take what were messages with thumbnail-sized pictures um, and pull out the pictures, blow them up to full-size color pictures and present them to the jury. So let me start with the last question. You, you have an exhibit with nine enlarged color pictures of Mr. Harris's penis. Explain why that is relevant probative and not prejudicial? It's relevant because this was what he was actually sending to people. It was the proof of what he actually did. And believe me, Justice Namias, I understand blowing them up full size to eight and a half by 11 so that they can go back into the jury room to be seen is a trial prosecutor's decision to make. And in this case, the trial team obviously made that decision. I have no idea why they made that decision. Okay, well, it was you, necessary. you are here for the state. You cannot dump it off on some other agent of the state did something. So are you defending that or are you conceding that at least that was irrelevant? And then the question is, is it prejudicial enough to have any effect on the case as a whole? By the way, you can hear that the chief justice is a bit hoarse. That's because Namius, at the outset of the hearing, said he just tested positive for COVID. But he says he's fully vaccinated and his symptoms are mild. The arguments were being held virtually. And Justice Nels Peterson also appears to have a problem with this case. Although the nature of the prejudice of those photos is also very similar to the nature of the prejudice that flows from the evidence regarding uh, Mr. Harris's uh, unlawful sexual communications with, with the minor, um, his unlawful prostitution. I tend to think that they're at least marginally relevant, but the probative value they have, once all the other stuff came in, is almost zero. And so the, the prejudicial effect each of those has builds on each other because they're all making the same point. This is a terrible person. And I will say you did a remarkable job of proving that he is a terrible person. But proving that he is a terrible person is not the same thing as proving that he murdered his child. So coming out of that hearing, it looked like attorney Mitch Durham had framed it pretty well. 
and it actually made me wonder whether the court was truly poised to overturn a murder conviction in one of the most high-profile trials in state history, a case that attracted worldwide attention. The Georgia Supreme Court has what's called a two-term rule. It always issues an opinion in a case by the end of the court's next term. So, I knew the Harris decision had to come out pretty much by the end of June or early July. So, as spring turned to summer, I had that in mind. A lot. The court announces what opinions are coming out by posting at 2 o'clock in the afternoon the names of the cases it will rule on the next morning. And there it was, on the afternoon of Tuesday, June 21st. The Harris decision was coming out the next day, usually around 8 o'clock or so. I texted two of Harris's lawyers, Maddox Kilgore and Carlos Rodriguez, to let him know. So the next morning around 8, I went to the court's website and clicked on the opinions page. And clicked again. And clicked again. And clicked again. Turns out, Kilgore and Rodriguez were doing the same thing. So I'll tell you that at 8 o'clock in the morning, we're in the office sitting in front of the laptops hitting refresh, hitting refresh, hitting refresh. And uh, I think at 8.29 or 8.30 or whenever it actually, uh, uh, the opinions were posted, I clicked on Harris and uh, saw how long it was and was just furiously scrambling through to, uh, to where I could find the end of the majority. Carlos didn't even, I didn't even let him know that, uh, let him know that I'd found it until, uh, until I said, uh, it's reversed. It was pretty exciting. We were uh, high-fiving and jumping around the office like a couple of kids. <laughs> oh, it was wild. Loved it. I mean, head was spinning for, for all the right reasons. I mean, just overcome with joy. Maddox is right. We, we hollered out. We ran to each other. Fist bump. You know, hug. I mean, it was great. It was great. It was a great day. Chief Justice David Namius writes the decision. It's 134 pages long. The dissent is another 21 pages. The vote is 6-3 to three to overturn Harris's murder conviction. Namius writes that the text messages Harris exchanged with other women the day of Cooper's death were relevant and admissible evidence. That's because they were closely linked in time to Cooper's death, and they show Harris's state of mind that day. But he says Judge Staley Clark should have excluded much of the other evidence of Harris's sexual behavior because it was overly excessive and prejudicial. He says three categories of such evidence are highly and unfairly prejudicial. Evidence that Harris exchanged sexual communications with four minors, nine enlarged full-page color photos of Harris's business standing at attention, and Testimony that Harris hired a prostitute three times. Namius wrote that evidence properly admitted to show Harris maliciously and intentionally left Cooper to die was, quote, far from overwhelming. He says if put before a jury, quote, it would be a difficult and close call. I asked Kilgore if he really thought this would happen, that the state Supreme Court would overturn the murder conviction. I guess the short answer is uh, yes. Um, we absolutely expected Ross to be granted a new trial, and we've been expecting it since the day of the verdict. And I'm not saying that as Ross's lawyer. I'm saying it as someone who um, was intimately involved in all of the mistakes which occurred during the 
pretrial and trial of the case. We knew that uh, the court was uh, stepping way, way outside the lines to let the state admit anything and everything they wanted uh, that was bad character in nature, regardless of how irrelevant, immaterial, prejudicial, whatever the state wanted, the court let it in. So we knew that was wrong in 2016. So to tell you now, six years later, that we expected this day to come and we expected the uh, Supreme Court to grant a new trial, it's the truth. We absolutely expected it. Rodriguez talks about an email exchange with Kilgore and co-counsel Brian Lumpkin. But this case was different. I mean, Ross's case was different. We expected at some point for a court to follow the law. And we didn't expect the motion for new trial to be granted, but we expected the Georgia Supreme Court to correct the errors in the trial court. We expected that. I mean, I think it was last week at uh, one point, we um, kind of half-serious, half-jokingly were emailing Maddox, Brian, and I that, you know, this time next week we'll be reading an opinion about Ross getting a new trial. And sure enough, that's exactly what we were doing yesterday. It's not bravado or that we somehow are smarter than everybody else. Or, but or hubris. We, we, yeah, yeah, it's not hubris, but we've been around long enough to know what is right and what is wrong. And uh, I think a couple of lines of this opinion made it very clear that, in essence, the defense was uh, put at a, an extreme disadvantage. And really, it was like fighting with both hands tied behind our back. So we're excited. We talked to Ross's parents yesterday, early yesterday morning, right after we found out. Um, I believe someone from Mitch Durham's office had already called Ross's mom and dad, and um, they'd been crying and praying and just really just rejoicing. And it was, uh, it was wonderful to hear a little bit of joy and hope in their voice because Carlos and I met these nice people the day after Cooper died, eight years ago, and they were broken people. And I've never known them to be anything other than broken people for eight years until yesterday. I mean, for the first time to hear just a little hope and a little joy and a little delight in their voice that this is a first step to hopefully having the truth of Ross's innocence uh, come out. The Cobb DA's office may beg to differ with that. I reached out to District Attorney Flynn Brody. His only comment is that his lawyers will ask the Georgia Supreme Court to reconsider its decision. I can think of the court changing its mind only once since I began covering it. It happened in 1995. So Harris is entitled to a new trial on the murder charge. DA Brody has three options. Retry Harris for murder, not retry the case, or try to reach an agreement that allows Harris to plead guilty to a lesser charge. Regardless, Harris is not getting out of prison just yet. The Supreme Court upheld three convictions the jury returned against Harris for sending graphic text messages to an underage girl. He was sentenced to 12 years in prison for that and has so far served eight years in custody. Harris could also be tried for charges in a still pending indictment handed up in March 2016, more than a year after he was indicted for murder. In that case, Harris is accused of 
possessing lewd photographs of two underage girls, sending nude photos to three underage girls, and engaging in sexually explicit chats with all three. The indictment includes two counts of sexual exploitation of children and six counts of disseminating harmful material to a minor. If convicted of these, Harris could be sentenced to decades more in prison. There's no question Harris went way, way over the line of criminal conduct with regard to his sexual interactions with minors. But did he intentionally kill Cooper? Right now, for that charge, he's presumed innocent. If he's tried again, will he get a fair trial? In the previous episodes of Death in a Hot Car, Mistake or Murder, Marietta lawyer Ashley Merchant repeatedly warned how damaging and dangerous it would be if Judge Staley Clark let in all the evidence of Harris's deviant sexual behavior. So I reached out to her after the Supreme Court decision. I remember that. And I mean, initially, when you hear that this evidence is going to come in, you immediately think as a lawyer, that's dangerous. That's something that could come back. And we always call it what's called reversible error. You know, does that rise to the level of reversible error, which has to be something pretty major um, in the legal field to actually render a reversal? Because most things are are harmless error, as you know, we've talked about before. Um, And this was the type of evidence that was so strong and so prejudicial that I thought immediately it was something that would be reversible. Merchant then reads a key part of Chief Justice Namias' opinion. But he said that through evidence, extensive evidence about Harris's extramarital sexual relationships, which included sending graphic sexual messages and pictures to multiple women, including minors, and hiring a prostitute, the state convincingly demonstrated that Harris was a philanderer, a pervert, and even a sexual predator. And I mean, that, that's true. That's, that's what they proved. Then he goes on to say, though, this evidence did little if anything, to answer the key question of Harris's intent when he walked away from Cooper. But it was likely to lead the jurors to conclude that Harris was the kind of man who would engage in other morally repulsive conduct, like leaving his child to die painfully in a hot car, and who deserved punishment, even if the jurors were not convinced beyond a reasonable doubt that he purposely killed Cooper. And that's exactly what happened here. That's, that's the jury could not get past that. They were so tainted that they could not get past this, this morally reprehensive conduct that Mr. Harris did to have a mind free to be able to determine whether or not he killed Cooper. And, and that's, that's the risk. And that's what the judge is always trying to consider if, if that balancing test, you know, if the risk of this prejudice is so great that it overwhelms any potential relevance. And it seemed from the beginning that this was this was pretty clear that it was. I reminded her the state said the evidence of sexual misconduct showed motive. But it didn't. I mean, and, and Justice Namias did not agree with that, that it helped show motive. Um, and the majority of this court did not agree that it helped show motive. Um, whether or not, you know, and, and if you think back, his wife testified about that. And, and some of his girlfriends, I think this was really compelling. Some of his... Um, you know, the people, he, the ladies he was cheating on his wife with testified that, yeah, he was a cheater. He was a, you know, pervert. He was a bad guy, but he loved his son. He wouldn't leave his wife because he loved his son. And so, you know, is, is every single person who cheats on their spouse, does that mean that they want their child dead? Does that evidence tend to make it more likely that they would want their child dead? Now, you know, there, there is evidence that could be out there that you want your child dead, but it's not this. It's definitely not this. And so, you know, one of the things that I thought, 
one of the best statements in this entire opinion was, if Harris is to be found guilty of those crimes, the crimes involving Cooper, it will need to be by a jury, not tainted by that sort of evidence. And that's exactly what we had here. We had a jury that was tainted by this evidence. And it's, it's, it makes sense. How can you put that stuff out of your mind? When you hear that this person is doing all of this stuff that, that, you know, is a sexual predator, all this stuff, how do you put it out of your mind? Like I said, the court's vote was six to three. Justice Charles Bethel wrote the dissent. He says the state should have been allowed, quote, to introduce in detail evidence of the nature, scope, and extent of the truly sinister motive it ascribed to Harris. Bethel also writes this, which is quite something. He says... The state Supreme Court rarely sees such a case in which diametrically opposed conclusions could be reached by fair-minded jurors from the same evidence. Of Harris, he writes, was he the heartless, sex-crazed killer of the state's telling, or a deeply flawed but loving father overwhelmed by the demands of life and work whose worst day resulted in his most costly mistake? Bethel also writes, that he believes the evidence of Harris's sexual activities, quote, was not introduced in this case merely to cast Harris in a bad light. That evidence went to the heart of the state's case. This is Breakdown from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. In the majority opinion, Namius rebuts some of Bethel's points. He also makes these points of his own. Contrary to the state's theory, A man does not normally enhance his ability to have sexual relationships by killing his young son. Also, the impediments marriage places on sexual affairs are normally overcome by cheating, divorce, or even the killing of one's spouse, not one's child. I asked Kilgore and Rodriguez what kind of precedent would have been set if the murder conviction was upheld. In other words, if Bethel's opinion carried the day. It would have been a green light, an endorsement for how criminal trials ought to be conducted. It would sanction running roughshod over someone's constitutional rights. That's not how our system's supposed to work. Bravo to the Supreme Court of Georgia for saying, huh, you know, everybody's going to play by the same rules. Rodriguez and Kilgore make this point about the court's decision. You know, a lot of attention is put on the fact that there was all of this improper evidence that was admitted, but no one should lose sight of the fact that we were handcuffed from putting up a full defense, which very much was really putting law enforcement and the investigation to task about all of the assumptions, conclusions they made on top of the lies that they told to a magistrate repeatedly over and over and over again. They relied upon the same search warrants and sworn testimony under oath that were just riddled with damning lies. Damning lies which to this day the public still believes uh, that Ross, uh, you know, researched how to kill children in cars or how to kill babies in hot cars. And of course it's all a lie. It's all a lie. But to this day, To this day, people still believe that. But there are comments on social media in response to news breaking of Ross's murder convictions being overturned. How is this possible? He researched 
how long it takes for a child to die in a hot car. He, re he Googled how this happens. He, he was part of a group that wanted to uh, live child free. Of course, it's, it was all a lie. It was all a lie. Kilgore says it was unfair that Judge Staley Clark barred the defense from questioning the Cobb police detective who put that in his search warrant application. Namius, in his opinion, agreed that Staley Clark made the wrong call. We were not allowed to question the detectives about the fact they lied under oath to a magistrate judge on warrant applications telling these lies and knowing they were lies. And um, we needed to establish that law enforcement was simply not credible. So therefore, their theory of the case, as silly and ridiculous as it was, was not credible. And the judge absolutely cut us off at the knees and didn't allow us to drive a truck through that fact that these cops are liars. Rodriguez says the state Supreme Court's opinion is a casebook study on what can happen when a judge makes repeated mistakes during the course of a criminal trial. Yeah, I, I mean, think that's what happened. Yeah, I mean, it's a sad reminder that when the law isn't applied evenly to everyone, no matter who they are, then this is how it happens. I mean, this is, this is the recipe for an innocent person being convicted. And so these opinions, right, if they're honored and they're followed, they should safeguard and make it a little harder for an innocent person to be convicted. But it may be too easy for folks to simply just disagree with this opinion and say, no, I mean, state should have been able to do this. Court should have been able to do this. But it's that kind of attitude that may make it a little easier for an innocent person to be convicted. It's scary. It's scary. Just for the record, Harris's ex-wife, Liana Taylor, continues to believe Harris did not intentionally kill their son. Here's Marietta lawyer, Lawrence Zimmerman, reading her statement in response to the court's ruling. This is big news for Ross and his family. I know they are grateful for this turn of events. While this will not change anything about my day-to-day -day life, I do hope that it shows people what those close to the case have been saying since the beginning. Ross was a loving and proud father to Cooper. At the same time, Ross was being a terrible husband. These two things can and did exist at the same time. It would be my wish that this would help to change the way that Cooper was remembered, that he was wanted, that he was loved, and that he's missed every single day. The overreaching of Cobb County and their misuse of power is what has brought this verdict to be overturned. It's been eight years since Cooper died and children have continued to die the same way every year. Wasting resources prosecuting the parents that this happens to is not the answer. Let's show some progress and put the money into what actually saves lives, the vehicles. Let's urge our politicians to act and pass the legislation that can stop these tragedies. So Justin Ross Harris once again stands innocent in the eyes of the law for the tragic death of his son Cooper. Some key questions remain. Can a good father be such a bad husband that he also becomes a bad father? Did Harris's secret life lead to the death of his little boy? Or was this just another tragic accident that occurs far too often nationwide? And of course, the biggest question of all. 
Will the state try him again for murder? If it does, will it have a chance of convicting him if it can't show enlarged photos of his genitals or offer seemingly endless testimony about what a horrible person Harris was? The state Supreme Court seems to be saying Harris may have beaten the murder rap if the state and judge had played by the rules, but will they play by the rules next time, if there is a next time? And will the outcome be different for Harris? We'll certainly let you know. As always, thank you so much for listening. And just in case you haven't heard, Breakdown is back for a ninth season, The Trump Grand Jury. We are covering the investigation in Fulton County of the former president and his allies and the events here in the weeks following the 2020 presidential election. We have already dropped two episodes and we'll drop a third this Monday. Please give it a listen. Until next time, I'm Bill Rankin. This is Breakdown from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.